Matthew chapter 11. We're going to be starting in verse 25. Finishing up the chapter today. But really this chapter leads into the next chapter, as many of them do. Matthew 11, verse 25. Just going to start by reading the Scriptures. Jesus says, At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is, is light. Just reading that passage is kind of, a, kind of relaxing for the soul. Just to hear Jesus say those words. To treat us like we're His to take care of. You know? Sometimes we burden ourselves, I wasn't planning on saying this, but sometimes we burden ourselves as though we just have to take care of ourselves. But Christ has claimed us. Christ, we are ours, we are, we are Christ's to take care of. We are the children of our Father. Sometimes we need to sit and reflect on the fact that we are the children of God. And if an earthly father will take care of his own children, how much better do you think God the Father is at taking care of us, his children? Lord, I just, I pray that you would help us to know you better today. I pray that you would show us your gracious mercy and how good you are to us through Jesus. I pray that we would lay aside our, any preconception that might stand in the way of the truth. I pray that you would help us to think for a minute on the work of Christ, and the power of Christ, the love of you, our Father, and recognize what kind of soul rest there is available for those who follow you. Pray that you teach these things to us according to your scriptures. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, in this situation, we have a, we, this paragraph is kind of split into two sections in a way. You see at the beginning, we see the type of person who is able to receive Jesus and believe in him. Let me read these first couple of verses here. At the time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and to anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. Now we are fairly... Um, <clears throat> familiar with the concept of election. And in this passage, we see that unless the Son reveals the Father to us, we cannot know the Father. 
It has been made very clear in the Scriptures that the Lord must reveal His truth to us if we are going to see it. We're going to look at that in a little bit more detail in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 here in a second. But we also cannot bypass the first verse that we read, the first two verses, verses 25 and 26, because it gives us a little bit of insight into who God reveals Himself to, who Jesus reveals Himself to. He says in verse 25, At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. The will of God, the desire of God, that he seeks to fulfill, okay? That he plans on fulfilling. Such was your gracious will. What, was his, what is God's gracious will? To reveal the hidden things, not to those who consider themselves to be wise, not to those who consider themselves to have great understanding, those who have a lot going for them, those who are obviously useful for the kingdom. Not to say that there are no wise people in the church, doesn't mean that there are no people of understanding that have ever been called to faith. But we see here Jesus declaring the overall emphasis on the will of God to reveal that which is hidden to those who cannot find it. To those who are not trying to be the found in their own regard. Arthur W. Pink, I just read this recently on Facebook actually, said something to the effect that um, a sheep cannot find its way back to the shepherd. The shepherd must go and find the sheep when it is lost. If it's all on its own, a sheep will remain lost. It'll get itself into more and more danger, more and more trouble, until it ultimately gets devoured by some carnivorous beast. The shepherd must go and find the sheep. The shepherd loves the sheep. The shepherd knows who are his and when we are part of his flock, we know his voice. We follow him. But he must first come and find us and bring us to his fold. And who does he do this to? Not those who consider themselves to be wise and to have full understanding. You, you, re, you recall the Gospels. We can recall together the people who were the most adamantly opposed to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And who were those people? The Pharisees and the other religious leaders, the scribes, the Sadducees, the people of religious power, the dignified men who walked in the name and the authority of God, who had, it, who had the Torah down, who kept the people in subjection to the Torah, the law, the people who had the wisdom and the understanding of the Scriptures and the people were just supposed to follow them because they had spent all their life learning the law, trying to keep the law, telling other people to keep the law. And they knew what the people needed to know. 
They knew what the people needed to do. But those were the people that when the Messiah came, rejected him. Those were the people who put him up to be crucified. Because that was the type of person that did not want the real, humble, suffering servant, Jesus. And they instructed the people that if anybody should believe in this Jesus, they would be cast out of the synagogue. They couldn't worship in the synagogue if they believed in this Jesus. They were so opposed to this Jesus because they knew better. They knew better. It is no wonder that the hidden things of Jesus remain hidden to the wise and the understanding and are revealed to those who approach the Lord like little children. For such was His gracious will. And there's something comforting in those words. Because in those words we read an element of peaceful delight. That it is very at the core of the gospel that we are not obligated to make something of ourselves in order to come to God. We are not obligated to make something of ourselves in order to be chased down by our, our God. Because Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He didn't come to seek and to save the found. He left the 99 to go and find the one that had wandered astray. And that tells me that the kind of God that has searched me out and has found me is a God who, yes, He has a scripture, He has a word for me to look at, to read, to know, to obey. But He loves me even when I disobey. I write these things to you that you may not sin, but if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Why does John call him the righteous? <laughs> we have an advocate. Even when we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Because the Father will judge our works, right? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, but not just Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ the righteous. Because in the Bible, we learn that Jesus kept the whole law for us. And he died a guilt that I deserve. He died for a guilt that I deserve to die for. So if we're going to have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, the one who has given me righteousness by his blood, is the one who stands on my behalf. That does not release me from any obligations from following Christ in his footsteps. And we're actually going to look at that. And that we're going to actually see today that that is actually the only way to truly discover the peace of God is to actually follow and do the things that Jesus did. That's, that comes later in this passage. But we must first establish that it is not those who have made something of themselves that God loves. God's love is not dependent on what you have done to yourself. God loves you because He is love. Not because you have any chance of being lovable to a sovereign, transcendent, almighty creator God. We can be lovable to each other. And we need to be love each other. And our loveliness, it benefits each other. 
And God wants us to benefit each other. And the more and more I look into the Scriptures, I see that as I follow Jesus, what happens? He transforms how I treat other people. Because I can't really, I mean, I can blaspheme the Holy Spirit, but in a a, a sense, I can't really mistreat God in any way that makes Him less of a God. That's not really the whole point of what it means to live like Jesus. Jesus came and sacrificed Himself for us. He emptied Himself for us. When He came, it was for the glory of God through bringing many souls to glory into creating people whose lives put the glory of Christ on display so that people see our good works and glorify the Father. But how do those those works glorify the Father if they do not also delight man? So there is a synchronization between glorifying God and serving one another. The greatest commandment is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the greatest commandment. They go together. They don't walk separately. They go together. And if we think that we're glorifying God, but we have no interpersonal love going on, then we're not really glorifying God the way Jesus taught us to glorify God. We may have overcome many of our past sins and much of the depravity that has plagued our past. And that is something that we can praise the Lord, that by His Spirit He has given us overcoming power to do. Because we need to overcome our sins, according to the Scriptures. But that is not the whole picture of holiness. Holiness is to then go forth and be a blessing to the nations, starting with our neighbors. That's what Jesus did. <laughs> I mean, if you, sum, if you can sum up a lot of what he did, he, was, he, was, he blessed Israel. He blessed the Gentiles. I mean, that goes back to the Abrahamic covenant. He will be a blessing to all, your seed will be a blessing to all nations. And all of this is initiated by the Father, carried out in the weak. In those who do not think much of their own selves. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. I'm not going to sit on a lot of these verses that we're about to read, but Paul actually goes into a pretty lengthy discourse about this very subject. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to, those, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Okay, so we, establish, so we establish a fact here that those who are not, have not been called to salvation, they will see the truth as being folly. Not to say that they will never have their eyes opened by God, but at this time, as they are perishing... They see it as foolishness. Many of us have talked to people about the gospel and really the overwhelming sense of their reaction is what you're believing. Sure, you can believe it if you want, but I think it's silly. And when you think about it, and I've mentioned this before, how realistic in this 
humanistic world is it for someone to believe that a man rose from the dead? I mean, that just doesn't really happen. So, I mean, from a humanistic, a strictly human perspective, it is a little outrageous to believe in a Messiah that lived, that we never, that we believe in a Messiah that we never saw. He lived 2,000 years ago, who claims to have risen from the dead and still lives today. And we believe this. Why? Because we have this ancient book that tells us so. I mean, when you strictly look at it from that perspective, from a humanistic viewpoint, you can see how foolishness might be remained in some of the in the minds of those who are perishing, to those who have not been revealed the truth. I'm not saying that it's not the truth. All I'm saying is that I can understand why they could not understand. <laughs> That's all I'm trying to say. Even though this has become beautiful and lively to me, I can understand how it's not beautiful and lively to them. Because I know that it's only beautiful and lively to me because the Lord reveals it to me. Because I know that when I open the Scriptures, I know that unless the Spirit guides me, these words on the page are just a jumbled mess. All, I mean, there are so many. It's actually pretty complicated when you read through some of the Scriptures. Some of the stuff's easy for the logical mind to comprehend. But some of this stuff, I mean, unless the Spirit was guiding me, I would not be able to see it. I would not be able to understand it. But let's move on. Verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, but many, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Now imagine if I were to tell you that myself. Because Paul is addressing the church at Corinth, and he's telling them, I know that not many of you are wise. <laughs> I know that you're a bunch of weaklings. <laughs> I mean, that's essentially what he's telling these people. I mean, how, how would you take that? If Paul were to come to you and start telling you, you're not wise, you're not noble, you're not powerful. I know that. I recognize that. I've met you. I know that you're not very bright upstairs. <laughs> how would you take that? How would you like that? <laughs> that, that would be a little bit harsh. And I'm not going to do that to you. I'm going to let Paul do it. I'm going to blame him. <laughs> But, I'm, but all he's trying to say, is, and, and honestly, childlike humility will receive that. Okay, so I, I have to receive that. That the Lord has not called me because of any inherent wisdom or value that I have to God. God did not, you know, when we, when I go, you know, 
watermelon shopping, I go and I knock on the watermelon, I kind of lift it around, I see the color and try to figure out which one's the best, right? Which one has the most potential to be a delicious watermelon. (laughs) But is that how God picks those whom he's going to save? (laughs) Well, they've got this skill, they've had this, they have this past testimony, they, they, you know, you know, they have this ability that I could really use. I guess I'll pick them. This person over here, no, 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 no. They have nothing to offer me. I'm not going to choose them. God does not pick those whom he's going to save like we pick a watermelon. <laughs> God in his sovereignty has chosen to actually do the opposite thing in a sense. You know, if I were to go pick my watermelon based off of which one was the most rotten, which one has some bug holes in it, some worms on it, still filthy from the, from, the, from the field, kind of small and deformed. That's the one I'll pick. Essentially, that's, what, that's how Paul is saying God chooses those whom he wants to save and use in this world. Again, not to say that there's never, you know, the Bible says it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. There are rich people who are saved, who have gotten saved while they've been rich. But as a general rule, we see how God chooses us. Not according to our wealth, not according to our wisdom, not according to what we have to offer Him. Because our salvation is not about what we have to offer Him. It's about what He has to offer us. His salvation is something that we need. When we we are chosen by God for salvation, we should rejoice because we've hit the jackpot in a sense. Like for some reason, this weak vessel has been chosen by God and been given His love and His affection. He has turned His eye towards me. And I don't know why. I don't know why. And the humble man who approaches the kingdom like a child will be able to to weep, in a sense, over His salvation, that he has received the love of God in salvation, in redemption, and is given an eternal inheritance in the heavens, and other people have it. Other people who seem to be far more valuable have it. And I don't know why. It's not really for me to answer to know why. Maybe one day in the heavens. But now, all we can do is rejoice that we have received the affection and the forgiveness of God. And he continues in verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written... Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. (laughs) Now I was learning a little bit something about boasting. Um, When Paul uses this term boasting, boasting was actually a military term. Um, You know, when when people would start, you'd see the, the armies lined up and they're about to charge into battle. The king or the general would ride back and forth in front of that front line, chanting out, basically, encouragement. We can take them. We can take them. We are strong. We are powerful. 
You know, even if they knew it was a losing battle, they would still do this to, to rise up the morale of the, of the army. And they would all start shouting and they would all start waving their swords and their shields. And then the battle would commence. That was called a boast where they would, where they would shout out the strength that they had. They would shout out the power and the might that they brought to this battle. And here he's saying, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He is our strength. He is our power. He is the one that if we are about to enter into a battle, what do we say to each other? We have the programs. We have the, the, you know, the doctrine. We have No, we say, we have the Lord. The Lord is with us. The Lord goes before us. He is our strength. The Lord is our deliverer. He is our boast. And that is why the Lord has chosen to save us as He does. Otherwise, we could boast in our wisdom. Oh, we have built such a great church because, oh, we just used the right processes. We have used the right tactics. We did the right things, the right kinds of marketing. That is false boasting. Earn our own salvation. Well, it's kind of clear why the Lord chose me, you know. I'm a great public speaker, and I have a lot to offer the people. I have a dynamic personality. I come with some wealth. It's quite obvious why I'm part of this church. <clears throat> Boo! <laughs> That's a boasting that comes from the devil. Because the one who boasts, let him boast in the Lord. He is our strength. There is nothing that I can accomplish that was not by the hand of God. And if our boasting latches on to some other proclamation, let it be accursed. Let it be smitten. Let it be erased from our lips and from our hearts. And he goes on in chapter 2, And I, when I come to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Has that ever been enough for you? All I need to know is that you are a brother in Christ. And that you have believed in the, the common faith of Jesus Christ. That's all that was important to Paul when he came to Corinth to determine, is this a true church or are they a false church? No, he just wanted to know, you're a true church because of Jesus and His calling. That's it. That's, it. That's, your, that's, that's what makes you a true church. That's what makes your faith true and pure. Because Jesus gave it to you. He opened your eyes to see. I'm not trying, you know, Paul is saying, I didn't come trying to open your eyes myself. I came to see if Jesus opened your eyes. That's how I can know that you're true. Verse 3, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature do we impart wisdom, Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret wisdom and a hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. <laughs> <clears throat> 
Oh, we give so much credit to the things that we can imagine and prepare for. Oh, if only we would take to heart what I no eye have seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. And then maybe we would just be satisfied with Jesus and loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Maybe we'd be satisfied with that if we did not rely upon our own wisdom to get things going. Verse 11, or verse 10, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except by the Spirit of God. Oh, if we realize what we had in the Spirit, the Spirit is one with God. If we want to know Him, why are we trying to search Him out on our own? Why, can't, why are we not conferencing with the Spirit? The Spirit's the one who actually knows Him. He can reveal to us all things. Now, verse 12, We have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. There are many things in the Scriptures that we will never be able to make heads or tails of apart from the Spirit. Apart from the Spirit. And a teacher, as Paul was saying, we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. As teachers, if we're teaching the Word of God, we must know that we're doing so by the power of the Spirit, not by the power of men, not by the power of man's wisdom and logic. Not to say that this stuff is illogical, but it operates on a completely different worldview than other people live by. I'm not going to get into worldviews now, but all all I want you to know is this. If you're going to learn the Word from another person, that person needs to be led by the Spirit. He must, be a spir- he must be walking in the Spirit. He must be searching out the things of God by the Spirit. And we as individuals seeking out God our own, we must recognize that we must rely on the Spirit. I'm not saying that everybody has to do this, but when I was a teenager, man, I, ha- I read so many commentaries. I was always in a commentary because I couldn't understand this stuff on my own. But the older I've gotten and the more I've gotten to know God and walk in the Spirit, the less and less I find myself having to use commentaries because the Spirit is with me, revealing to me the truths of His Word. Now, I'm not saying that it's wrong to use commentaries, and I still use them. I'm not saying it's wrong to do that or that you're, you're not really a Christian if you use a lot of commentaries. I'm not saying that at all. All I'm saying is, if you're using a commentary, make sure that you listen to the Spirit before you listen to the commentator. (laughs) Because the commentators are really helpful in filling in some things that we wouldn't be able to know on our own, you know, especially from a historical perspective or cultural perspective, things like that. But I don't want to sit on that much longer. We have to move on. Luke 10, 24, 10-23. You don't have to turn there if you don't want, but I'm going to read this to you. Because in, 20, in verses 21 and 22, he says the exact same thing that we just read in Matthew. 
in our passage here in Matthew. But then in verse 23, Luke adds, Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. The prophets knew that they were prophesying of a time to come. The kings, at least the ones who followed God, knew that they were not leading their own people, but a people whom the Lord had given an everlasting inheritance, an everlasting promise. They knew it wasn't about them in their day, but oh, the prophets especially, they longed to see the deliverance from the Messiah. They longed for it. In 1 Peter 1, we're just following a train of thought here, if you bear with me. 1 Peter 1 Verse 10, Peter says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that they have now, that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. <laughs> Even the angels wish that they could see the things that we see. Can you understand that? I mean, there are people who almost idolize angels. And, you know, there's talk of angels in the scriptures and their power and their guardianship and things like that. But there are people who idolize them. They almost worship idol, worship these angels. They pray to these angels. They think that these angels are going to save them from sickness or death or danger. But look, the angels don't even have what we have. They have a purpose. They serve the Most High in the things that the Lord tells them to do. They have a purpose. But they are not the ones that we look to for guidance. In fact... The angels wish that they could understand what we have been given. You know, we have a little bit of a heads up on the angels in regards to the things of the gospel. They even wish for that. But even, you know, when it talks about the prophets, oh, they, they knew that they were prophesying about the coming deliverance, but it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. That's why we cannot do away with the prophets. When we are reading through the Scriptures, we cannot skip over the prophets because according to Peter, they were serving us in the things that they said. What they have prophesied serves us in how we get to understand the Messiah, how we get to know Jesus. We must not overlook them because they have much importance to say. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 11. Verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Those of us who have, to whom the Son has been revealed, let us not overlook the importance of what has been given us. Let us not take it for granted. Let us 
look into this. Let us give ourselves to this. And Jesus is actually going to tell us about this in one second here. He says in verse 28, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now what does this have to do with the things that we've been talking about? Now, we have to put ourselves in this time and space, okay? Which is hard to do sometimes. In this time, the people that Jesus is talking to, they were under the Mosaic Law. They had to fulfill the law. They had to obey the law. It was a hard law that we know from Romans only revealed sin, and in fact, it awakened sin. It, but it, it by no means dissipated sin. <laughs> it revealed it to us. It revealed our weakness to us. And oh, that did not save. That did not relieve them of their burden of guilt. And on top of that, these people had to deal with the Pharisees and the scribes. We're not going to look at all the passages that talk about them, but I've compiled a little list of some of the things that they did. The Pharisees did keep the law to some degree. In fact, they tithed on everything, including their spices. They kept regular fasts two times a week. They were faithful in regular daily prayer multiple times a day. They upheld the lawful sacrificial system. They were blameless as far as the people were concerned in regards to the Ten Commandments. They held diligently to Sabbaths and festivals. In fact, they wanted to kill Jesus because He didn't keep the Sabbath the same way they did. But in regards to their interactions with their fellow man, they were merciless and they were harsh. They had authority and piety and orthodoxy, but they lacked the love and compassion of God that you can even see in the Torah. If you read the law, you see the love and compassion in there, behind a lot of the law there. But these Pharisees used their authority to take advantage of widows for personal gain. They overlooked the poor and needy. They ignored the strangers. They hated the Gentiles. They treated the poor and sick like second-class citizens. They judged without mercy. They received bribes and honored the case of the rich and powerful, subverting justice. They sought to be honored amongst the congregation of the people. They loved being called by terms of importance. They laid heavy burdens upon the people. And the people, not only were they obligated to, care, to obey the law, but they also had to obey the Pharisees who were like this. Their life was hard and heavy. So for Jesus to say these things was truly refreshing. In contrast to the worldly religious leaders, Christ offers a light burden to His followers. Not necessarily because overcoming the flesh, the world of sin, and seeking God's kingdom is always easy. If you've ever had to overcome sin, you know that that's not easy. (laughs) If you've ever done something really for the sake of the kingdom, that is not always easy. But what he's talking about mostly is because who the one is that that we're following in this? Who is it that we're following? We are following a Christ who loves the poor and the needy. He loves the afflicted. And he, he actually offers his gospel to them first. 
He loves all people from every nation. He offers His salvation without reproach. He uplifts the outcast and the humble and resists the proud and the self-exalting. He judges with mercy and justice, making no partial judgment based off of who you are or where you come from. He humbled Himself for our sakes and set aside His glory and honor in order to honor and uplift us. He lays no heavy burden upon His people without accompanying it with grace and power. He says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. And it is also fitting that the will of God would be to give Christ salvation to children who are gentle and lowly in heart. The little person, the despised and the rejected and the desperate, rather than the powerful and the self-exalting, because of who He is. Because of who He is. And then we read here, in verse 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now I want to discuss this, and this will probably be the last thing we discuss together about this passage. We need to understand what he means by taking a yoke. It was actually a common rabbinical term for the day that they were living in. To take a yoke upon someone means to adopt the practices in the way of the teacher. And often they would, they would tell their people, take the yoke of the Torah upon you, which meant to obey and follow and do the things that are in the law. You know, it makes sense. A yoke was a, was a farming tool that was placed on oxen to help plow fields and do their work out in the fields. Um, so you think about the, the yoke laid upon the oxen where he was carrying the plow from that yoke or whatever it was that he was pulling. Now, I'm a fool in regards to farming, so I might be wrong about some of this stuff. Um, but from what I understand, <laughs> the yoke was used for work. The yoke was used to go and plow the fields. The yoke was used to go and farm the fields. Without the yoke, the farmer could not really use the oxen. Because that yoke allowed them to use the oxen in doing their farming tasks. So taking a yoke is in a way telling, when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, he's saying, do the things that I'm doing. Take my yoke upon you. Do the things that I've been teaching you. Follow me. Learn from me, he says, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. So the first thing that our work for the kingdom of God should look like is gentle and lowly in heart. If we want to be the proud, uplifted, self-exalted one who is always looking down upon everybody else in leadership, we need to take another look at Jesus. Because he's saying, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And then you will find rest for your souls. You want to find rest for your souls? Then start by doing the things that are counterintuitive. The world says you must be powerful and rich and dynamic in order to have an impact and to be successful. But Jesus says, I'm gentle and lowly. Follow me and do the things that I've been doing in my gentleness and in my lowliness. That's when you'll find rest for your souls. That's when you'll know the Sabbath on the inside. And here's here's some examples. I've kind of modernized them, but these are really things that Jesus did or taught. Have you ever skipped church to serve someone in need? Replacing religious duty with humble compassion. Have you ever made a sacrifice that others would deem wasteful 
Because you loved the person that you were sacrificing for. Have you ever avoided the limelight when you deserved to be in it? Have you ever had an opportunity to to gain for yourself, but instead you gave to somebody else? Have you ever done something others deem unorthodox so that you could minister to someone and show them God's love? Have you ever befriended somebody that nobody else would ever befriend? Have you ever had an opportunity to justly condemn someone in their actions, but chose to deal graciously and mercifully with them instead? These are just some things that I've jotted down. But if you have done any of these things in some way, shape, or form, then you understand what Jesus means by soul peace. Because these come from a gentle and lowly heart. A heart that's not trying to build up yourself, but a heart that's trying to build up and serve another, even at the expense of your own good and well-being. That's exactly what Jesus did. He says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, these things are not always easy to do with our hands. Sometimes they come with a lot of stress. But honestly, when our full faith is on Christ, when we are truly gentle and lowly in heart, serving our fellow man the way that Jesus served our fellow man, this is the natural course for the believer. It is what should come naturally. Usually a lot of stress, a lot of hardship comes when we're trying to do something that we really have to show a lot of self-control. We really have to set, we really long for this. There's a battle because I know I have to do this. It's my duty to do that, but I really want that. That's when it becomes really hard. But as we grow and we mature, you know, kind of like this child said in this illustration that I gave with the kids, he says, I had an old heart inherited from my ancestors who were sinners, but Jesus gave me a new heart. Jesus has no bad hearts to give. If he gave me a, gave me a heart, I'm sure it's an excellent one. You know, there's a, there's a passage in Romans we've read before, there's no one who does good, there's no one who seeks God, there's no one who understands. When the Lord gives us a new heart, all that changes. We become sanctified. We become set, af- set apart. Our heart of stone is taken away and we're given a heart of flesh. God changes our course. And that course can be guided if you want to discern your course of life. Are you gentle and lowly in heart? If you are not, then you're walking according to the wisdom and the ways of man in one way, shape, or form. And I'm not going to go into example after example about how that could play out because I don't want this to end with negativity. But I want to end this with Take the yoke of Jesus upon you. Look through the scriptures and see what he did and what he taught. Not that he was never harsh. He was harsh against the Pharisees because they were self-righteous. But with everybody else, you see gentleness. You see compassion. You see mercy. You do not see him trying to make something of himself. You see him trying to make much of other people. Saving, first and foremost, he came to seek and to save the lost. Something that we can never do for ourselves. And really, we are the most like Jesus when we are doing something for somebody else that we can never do for ourselves. That's how we can really glorify Jesus the most. And that's really why when the church reaches out to the poor and the needy, 
the rejected, the disgusting, those who are completely at a loss, that's really when we shine like Jesus the most and glorify our Father in heaven because that's the type of ministry Jesus came to do. So let us look, let us meditate on this today. When you go home, meditate on this. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The yoke of the Pharisees is hard. The yoke of the law is hard. But look at Jesus. Look to Jesus and learn how to be who you are. Lord, I just pray that you would give us sight to see Jesus high and lifted up, to magnify him. Let him be our boasting, for he is our strength and our portion. He's our savior and redeemer. I pray, Lord, that our eyes will be ever lifted upwards. Reveal to us the things that we cannot find ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.